The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, April 22nd, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And now five remarkable things about Prince. One, he is more associated with a color, a very mainstream color, than anyone else that I can think of is with any specific color. I mean, who else is that, right? Viktor Yushchenko and the Orange Revolution? Please. Prince's revolution was much more impactful. You got Kermit and Green, but Kermit bemoaned the greenness. Also, greenness has been co-opted by German leftists. And, and yeah, Kermit, he's not even real. Even less real than Prince. Prince owned purple. That was amazing. Second remarkable thing. Prince was more popular than any actual prince. I saw the news that Prince died, and I said, oh, Prince Charles, or maybe even a Saudi prince. Well, ho-ho-hum. But then I saw it was Prince Prince, and I said, oh, no, the real prince. I bet you did the same. Three, he was a great singer, and I don't know, maybe one of the 20 or 30 or 40 greatest guitar players ever. He sang better than any other guitar great, and he played guitar better than any other singing great. Now, most great guitar players of the rock era had a front man. So Prince was his own front man. It was as if Eddie Van Halen and David Lee Roth were one person. Or here's a better analogy, Brian May and Freddie Mercury, all being the same person. And he could move and dance with a guitar better than any of them. Four, in the original Filthy 15, which was Tipper Gore's list of offensive artists from the 80s, the Parents Music Council, Prince actually was 20% of them. He was Prince, and he was funky, specifically Darling Nikki, which kicked off the list when Karina Gore bought it in the store. Oh my God, there's a dirty song on this Prince album. But he also penned the song for Sheena Easton Sugar Walls that got him on the list. And he also created Vanity, who fronted the band Vanity Six. She was on the list. And today I learned that Prince originally wanted to name Vanity Vagina. She objected, though later when Vagina changed her name to a symbol, I'm sure the symbol itself would have been banned by Tipper Gore. And five remarkable thing, When Doves Cry is the greatest rock song ever recorded without a bass line. Yesterday is close. Great song without a bass line, but the bass kind of in there in the cello. Not when doves cry. I don't know. You could debate that all day. But what I wanted to do is to remember Prince in the way I do via a cavalcade of facts. We all mourn in our own way. Today on the spiel, American justice versus Scandinavian justice. They look so little alike, you wonder if it's just. And now let's really delve deep into Prince. I want to examine not only his legacy in the ephemeral sense, but the tangible sense, his place in recorded history, what becomes of all the unreleased music he was responsible for. There's no one who is better to talk this all out with than Chris Malamphy. Harry's is a disruptor in the shaving space, which doesn't sound nice to your face, but it really is. Quality German-engineered five-blade cartridges, a close, comfortable shave. They guarantee their quality. Let's say you don't like it. They'll give you a full refund. But the refund might not be enough because this brings me to price. They sell their blades at half the price of the leading brand, and they'll just ship them to you. Hey, 
You think you can unlock the razors? Yeah, I know, after you get to the AA batteries. No, I know you gotta help, there's a spill on aisle four, but if you could unlock the razors in that amount of time, Harry's would be shipping you your razors. And here is the deal you get. They got a starter set, it's called the Truman. It's a great option for new customers. If you've been listening to the show and saying, oh, I mean to get a Harry's deal, do the deal with the Truman. For $15, you get a razor handle, moisturizing shave cream, and three of Harry's five blade German engineered razors. For fans of the gist, you get $5 off your first purchase with promo code gist. For haters of the gist, still use the promo code gist. $5 is $5. Go to harrys.com right now. That's at H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Make sure to use the promo code gist at checkout if you're a first-time customer to let them know who sent you. It's the gist, and they're Harry's. So for me, it was, I guess it was 79 or 80, and I was in a pizza parlor near my home. It's one of these businesses that have become a hundred different things over the years. But since I lived in Long Island, at this time it was a pizza parlor, and a song comes on the radio. And I couldn't tell what the chorus was. I later found out it was controversy. And there was just something about, I didn't even know what funk was. I was like eight years old, but I'm like, this is a great song. Then the part in the song where it was proto-rap and you weren't hearing rap back then. People call me rude. I wish we all were nude. I wish there was no black and white. I wish there were no rules. I wish there were no black and white. I wish there were no rules. People call me rude. I wish we all were nude. Well, that's how I became a Prince fan. We all have our own stories, and I think we were all reflecting on them over the last day. I'm here with Chris Malamphy, who writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate, and he counts down the hits for us often. But today we want to talk about the music of Prince, the number ones, the number twos. I think he had 40 Billboard Top 100s, and Chris is wearing purple today. No coincidence, right, Chris? Absolutely none, Mike. Was it a pizzeria where you first heard You know what it was, actually? This is my memory of Prince. It was a block party. Uh I grew up in Bensonhurst. I remember in September of... 1984. My birthday fell on a Saturday, I'm pretty sure. And uh, it happened to be a block party. I couldn't have been more excited. I was turning 13. And my Uncle Michael, shout out to Uncle Michael, got me Purple Rain on vinyl for my birthday, the first Prince album I'd ever owned. I could have had a Tipper Gore moment, frankly, because, you know, when I heard Darling Nikki yeah. a couple weeks later, that I realized I better not let my mom hear this LP. I knew a girl named Nikki, Prince was pretty well, lascivious. He was one of the filthy days. fifteen, or whatever. He was one of the filthy fifteen. <laughs> Arguably, he invented the filthy fifteen. But um, but that's I, the original name of the time. <laughs> but uh, but no, the, my my love of Prince began at that moment, and uh, I became a devoted fan, and have been ever since. So. In sports, there are certain numbers that we like. Even it, It's a tragedy that Roberto Clemente died, but he ended at exactly 3,000 hits. And Prince had five number one songs. And the songs are the songs that you think they would be when Doves Cry, Kiss, Let's Go Crazy, Cream. 
But then bat dance. Yeah. What do you do with bat dance? What do you do with bat dance? Bat dance, uh, man, what a pastiche of a hit. I, I like to quiz people on Princess Five number one hits yeah. because they can usually get through the first three. Cream is usually a little tough to remember. Mm-hmm. And then nobody remembers bat dance. Bat dance was the definition of a short-lived viral hula hoop of a number one hit from the summer of 1989 when uh, the Tim Burton-directed movie Batman was out and Prince raised his hand and it was it was great corporate synergy because the movie was being released by Warner Brothers and Prince was recording for Warner Brothers at the time. Prince raised his hand and said he wanted to record the entire soundtrack, not just a song, the yeah. entire soundtrack to the forthcoming Tim Burton Batman movie. And it became uh, a full studio album for him. And Bat Dance, which closes the album, is less a song than a pastiche of movie dialogue and assorted sound effects. It's quite catchy, but it is... Um, it is rather fleeting of a number one hit, not one you hear on the radio much anymore. I bet when you ask people, so what are his number ones, the wrong answers are probably Purple Rain, which was number two. But I bet you a lot of people say 1999 or Little Red Corvette, but those didn't chart because they were before... They were before the Purple Rain album. They were the album that put him on the map, but he wasn't quite at the point where he'd make a song and it would immediately get play everywhere. That's right. Well, Little Red Corvette in particular is a is a very important track for Prince and his career. Uh, it's his first top 10 hit, and it was sort of the record that Prince finally got onto radio station playlists and MTV kind of tooth and nail. It's a song that hybridizes R&B and rock and pop. I mean, it's almost like a classic 50s, 60s song, albeit much more sexual, uh, a little more lewd, but with a wink and a nudge. And it kind of fulfilled Prince's longtime destiny. From the moment he signed with Warner Brothers Records in 1978, he insisted on being part of Warner's pop division, not its R&B division, despite the fact that he was an artist of color. And obviously, R&B radio would be the most natural home for him. Album after album, he was laboring to be perceived as a a genre-free or an all-genre artist. And Little Red Corvette is the moment where he really fulfills it. It not only did better on pop radio than it did at black radio. It made the top 10 on the Hot 100. It made the top 20 on the black chart, what was then called Hot um, hot Black Singles. But That chart has had 60 different names. It really has. Yeah, it's had so funny. many names. In the 80s, yeah. it was called Hot Black Singles. Now in the it, 70s, it was Hot Soul Singles. What's it, it now? Uh, now it's Hot R&B Hip Hop Songs. Yes, just so you know. Just, so it's that's very, where Little Red Corvette was. That's where Little Red Corvette <laughs> peaked at number 15. <laughs> it not only did it do well on those two charts, it also made the top 20 on a proto version of the rock chart. There was a a fairly new rock chart in Billboard back then, and it made it to number 17 on that chart. So it was a true crossover hit and just a fantastic record. Right. 
what Prince foresaw in, in 1978 when he signed to Warner Brothers Records is this genre boundary thing is is BS. I'm not going to, you know, fall prey to it. I know I can do everything and I am going to create songs that have a little bit of everything in them. I mean, as early as Dirty Mind, his third album, he's releasing a song like When You Were Mine, uh, a song later covered by everyone from Mitch Ryder to Cindy Lauper. A song that has rock in its bones, but also soul and, you know, kind of classic pop from the 50s. I mean, it, it's just such a brilliant record. Prince was already in that pocket long before the industry was ready to promote him that way. And he and Michael Jackson, arguably, as kind of twin forces, you know, Michael Jackson also combining rock with his, his you know, R&B and pop on, on records like Beat It. The two of them were sort of pointing the entire industry toward a true genre, ecumenical, all-encompassing pop. Now, if you want to talk about Prince, you have to talk about the tree. There are branches from the tree. And of course, he had his influences, but it's not just influence. If you want to talk about influences, you can't possibly write the list. But the artists that were either part of the time, I mean, if, if from him, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were mm-hmm. part of the time, and they went on to produce everything that Janet Jackson did and become the biggest producers of their era, and other acts that he either blessed or he either brought on stage with him or songs that he wrote. So what's his billboard chart impact there? Prince really defined the 80s, even if his name wasn't on the record at all. Mm-hmm. First of all, there were all the records he just flat out gave away. This week in April 1986, the top two records on the Billboard Hot 100 were both Prince written songs. One of them actually by Prince, the number one song, Kiss, uh, that brilliant, you know, all falsetto funk number that we all know and love. And the number two record is Manic Monday by The Bangles, a song that Prince wrote under a pseudonym, Christopher, a name I'm very fond of, (laughs) and which he gave away to Susanna Hoffs, his sometime paramour, to sing, which couldn't be more different from Kiss. I mean, just in those two records, you're seeing the breadth of Prince's talent. On that same Hot 100 in April of 1986, toward the bottom, there's a record by Sheila E. called A Love Bazaar, which uh, had been uh, a number 11 record just a couple months earlier. Again, it's essentially a Prince record in all but name. All he takes is a co-writing credit, but he's singing on the record, he's playing instruments on the record, he arranged the record, and it basically, not to take anything away from Sheila E., who was an extremely talented drummer, but it's a Prince record that he all but bequeathed to Sheila E.
And then, besides the records he gave away, and I could go on, there are other records that Prince wrote. Think about Nothing Compares to You, the number one hit from 1990 by Sinead O'Connor. That, that, that was a number one record for, I believe, four weeks in the spring of 1990. So that's, that's longer than all but one Prince song. Is yes. That's almost the most successful Prince song. And I mean, and Doves cry. Yeah. To, to digress for a moment, it's a throwaway, almost a throwaway record for Prince. Throwaway is well, probably the wrong word. he recorded it first, right? He recorded it with a yeah. side project that he had at his Paisley Park studios called The Family, a side project of the time that never really took off as an act. And when I say throwaway, it was, it was kind of a deep cut. It hadn't gone anywhere. It's been seven hours and 13 days Since you took your love And Sinead O'Connor takes it and turns it into this utterly brilliant tour de force of a performance. I mean, that's the depth of his songwriting, that he had these hits lying around that were, you know, worthy of being covered by so many people. Since you've been gone, I can do whatever I want. I can see whomever I choose. When you listen to the records of the mid-80s, it's like you could hear Prince's fingerprints over everything. Think about Susudio, a number one hit by Phil Collins. Prince had nothing to do with that record, but it's basically a ripoff of 1999. Think of Oh Sheila by Ready for the World, number one hit in late 1985. Could be a Weird Al Prince style parody. I thought it it's was, so close. I thought it was Prince because of Sheila E. And I just always thought that, that Ready was, for the World had nothing yeah, to do with yeah, Prince, but, nothing to do with Paisley Park. But I mean, my God, it's such an, a brilliant, Sheila you know. E, Sheila Easton, two different people. Sheena Easton. Sheena Easton. Sheila E. Yeah. And Sheila oh, E. Sheila. in the summer of 84, yes. she has her big breakthrough with The Glamorous Life, a song written and produced by Prince. Later that year, Sugar Walls, a record that Prince wrote for Sheena Easton. Three years later, Sheena Easton and Prince actually duet on a Prince song, You Got the Look. I mean, the number of people in Prince's orbit, uh, think about I Feel For You, kind of a small to medium-sized record on an early Prince album turned by Shaka Khan in late 1984 into an utter tour de force with Melly Mel rapping and Stevie Wonder playing harmonica. It's like Prince's influence was being flung in every direction in the 1980s. He was defining the sound of pop, sometimes without even trying. Now, I know that he changed his name for the symbol to the symbol, not because it was a weird guy or maybe a little bit influenced. He's a little quirky. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. He had his peccadillos. But it was a statement. It was he didn't want to get ripped off by the record company or he felt he was. But could you tell me exactly how? Because I I don't know that I quite understand what he created that he wasn't either allowed to use or making money from. So Prince was assertive about his contractual arrangements from the start. For example, in 78, when he first signed to Warner Brothers. Not even. He's like 18. Oh, my God. He's really young. He basically wants what you could call a Stevie Wonder contract, but not the Stevie Wonder of 13-year-old genius, the Stevie Wonder of later 70s Motown, total creative control, and he wanted it at a remarkably young age, and Warner agreed to it. 
by the time he's ready to um, renew his contract in the early 90s, he's realizing that he has still signed away too many of his rights, including some of the rights to his masters. And he starts walking around with this uh, slave tattoo on uh, on his cheek, changing his name to an unpronounceable symbol, mostly despite Warner Brothers Records. But what are the masters? I mean, I understand what publishing rights are. Anytime a radio station plays it, he gets some sort of nickel, you know, a hundredth of a nickel or whatever. Right. But what are the masters and what, if he doesn't have rights to the masters, what can he do the masters are the original recordings okay uh, it's it's prince's original not not just a cover of when doves cry the original when doves cry and prince really wanted to utterly control the fate of his masters there are a handful of artists prior to the most recent days who signed advantageous contracts elvis costello is a good example david bowie is a good example where they reached a point in their contracts where they could actually control their masters and even re-release it on different labels prince wanted that kind of control he like you said because he was such a prolific songwriter he wasn't hurting anytime anybody covered a song of his like nothing compares to you for sinead o'connor he was making money off of that it wasn't like he was a poor man for Prince, frankly, to his dying day, it was all about utter control. You see that right through the 2000s when the internet takes off and, you know, YouTube is invented and streaming is invented. Prince exerts iron-fisted control. Uh, one of the funny things about this week is he's passed away and people are trying to commemorate him. If you're, you're trying to write an article about Prince and you yeah. want to link to a YouTube video, yeah. good luck because he has scrubbed most of the There's internet. There's that one black and white masters. concert from 82, which is awesome. Awesome. But it doesn't have Such the a great concert. Theater, but it doesn't have any of the songs after 19. Exactly. Yeah. Was he right? Was he was he rational about control of the masters? Was he Prince was something of a control freak. I think everybody agrees on that point to to an, an egregious degree. And it wasn't to, to answer your original question. It wasn't just about the money. The money was part of it. He certainly had strong opinions about how he thought he was getting ripped off. But it strikes me now that he's, you know, passed on that more than anything, he wanted to exert total creative control at all times, distribution control at all times. This is a man who, by the way, after he got out of his Warner Brothers contract in the early to mid 90s, released albums and singles on a range, sometimes on a one album contract. Sony released a Prince yeah. album at one point. A tiny label called Bellmark released a Prince album at one point. Universal released a Prince album at one point. He's been on more labels than you can count on your fingers and toes. Now, there's one last question. And since he's died, it's come out. Well, this was known. He's had 26 unrecord, uh, unreleased albums or whatever the number is. This is some huge vault. Do you think that they'll see the light of day? I, I think maybe they will. Prince was the control freak. He's gone. Someone will want to give this stuff to the world. But is there any reason to believe these are albums? These are fully formed albums as opposed to outtakes and outtakes from a period where, yeah, there were some songs that were good, but we're not going to hear the next 1999 from these. I would be pleasantly surprised if we heard something of tremendous quality, but I do think it's very possible that we will hear multiple albums potentially from the estate of Prince. I will compare Prince to two deceased figures, both of whose legacies are a little messy. In one sense, he could be like Tupac Shakur in the sense that he has left behind so much material. He didn't die young the way Shakur did, but Shakur left behind so damn much material that it became a joke after a while how many post-death Tupac albums, posthumous Tupac albums were released. He's also a little bit like James Brown Prince in the sense that he dies with a bit of a tangled estate and legacy. He was never married. He he had several partners over the years, including women he had children with. But understanding who's going to control that estate and decide when the that vault is going to get tapped and in what uh, way, that's going to be an issue that could be quite tangled, hopefully not as tangled as some of the machinations around, say, Michael Jackson's legacy. But 
given the sheer prolificness of Prince, the sheer amount of material he recorded in his lifetime, and some of which he actually issued on his own. He, he almost bootlegged himself, uh, putting out, you know, projects like the Crystal Ball Project that were long rumored and eventually saw the light of day. I have every expectation that we are going to hear more music from Prince, even in the beyond. Chris Malamphy writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate? And he joins us to talk about number one hits of a year or one of the top, I don't know, five artists of the last 30 years. I think that's safe. Yeah. Chris, thanks so much. You got it, Mike. Let me guide you to the purple ring. I never meant to call you when you fall I never meant to call you when you pain. You know, they say the Panoply Network gathers no moss. They don't really say that, but if they did, it would fit right in with our newest podcast. Check this out. Hey, I'm Nathan Brackett, executive editor of Rolling Stone. I'm excited to say that our podcast, Rolling Stone Music Now, is now part of the Panoply Network. Every week, me and the writers and editors of Rolling Stone take an inside look at the biggest stories in music, talk about what we're listening to around the office, and answer your burning questions, like what is emo? So check out Rolling Stone Music Now on the iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And now the spiel, oh mercy. Today, the governor of Virginia announced that he would be signing an order restoring the voting rights of 206 ex-felons, a blow he acknowledged against his state's history of voter suppression. I believe it is time to cast off Virginia's troubled history of injustice and embrace an honest, clean process for restoring the rights of these men and women. This came on the heels of Maryland doing the same. There are almost 6 million Americans, disproportionately African Americans, who aren't allowed to vote even after they serve their sentences. All of the laws restricting felons or people on parole or people on probation from voting are all state laws. And the harshest laws, the strictest laws, are in states that were once part of the Confederacy. In fact, two states, Maine and Vermont, actually allow felons to cast absentee ballots from jail. Maine and Vermont, perhaps not coincidentally, are the whitest and the second whitest states in the United States. Republicans complained that this was a nakedly political act insofar as Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic governor of Virginia, was looking to position his state well ahead of the presidential election. And while Maryland, the other state that did that, is solidly Democrat and would probably vote Democrat anyway, Virginia's a swing state now. McAuliffe is a former chair of the Democratic National Committee. He was the chair of Bill Clinton's re-election campaign. He was the chair of Hillary Clinton's 2008 election campaign. 200,000 potential African-American voters will undoubtedly help Democrats. And I'm not naive. I think that if that weren't the case the Democratic governor might not have issued the executive order, but I also think it happens to be the right thing to do. In America, we are perhaps finally 
in some circles, beginning to grapple with the costs of incarceration and the effects of some of its practices, namely solitary confinement. New York City is banning it after it was used and abused in Rikers Island, and soon a new documentary will air on HBO called Solitary, where they lay out what this practice really means. Ask yourself, can you live in a bathroom for 10 years? It's bad to lock an individual up and just put them in a in a room, a closed, you know, nothing to do. It's, 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 I guess you could say inhumane. And I know that we're inmates and all, all year, but it, excuse my language, it fucks me up. According to the advocacy group Solitary Watch, an estimated 80 to 100,000 Americans are detained under these conditions. But solitary in the U.S. is not like solitary everywhere. Take Norway. Two days ago, the mass murderer and terrorist Anders Bravik won a case that his conditions were inhumane. Bravik, in 2011, if you recall, killed 77 people in Norway, mostly young people. He's a very aggressive Nazi. He gave the Nazi salute at his hearing, and he objected to his captivity. Let us now glimpse the hellhole that he has been forced to endure. He has a PlayStation. He has a computer. He has his own TV. He does his own laundry. Here's what else he has, according to CNN. He has three cells to himself, including an exercise area with machines. According to a letter to the Norwegian Correctional Authority, Bravik said of his prison, quote, I strongly doubt there exists a worse place for atonement in Norway when it comes to an environmental perspective than the basement of this prison, and I feel that this is additional punishment. The isolated cell I live in has white walls that I am not allowed to decorate. The rubber pen at his disposal was not working well enough for him, can only write 15 words a minute, and it was ergonomically malformed, causing his hands pain. There was no coffee in a thermos. He was not allowed to have a thermos in his cell, which means 80% of the time he had to drink cold coffee. And the moisturizing lotion that he got was not allowed in a closed container, so it would dry up by the end of the day. Also, he only got enough butter for two to three slices of bread, but he eats four slices of bread. Bravik also mentioned that he felt pressure to finish shaving and brushing his teeth quickly. The wardens were right outside his cell. Quote, this limits toothbrushing to once a day and shaving to once a week to avoid having to go through this mental strain more often than truly necessary. Those are all ridiculous and really offensive and clearly the product of a not right mind, though it's not excusing that mind. But then there was this last complaint, no socialization. On an average day, the dialogue with the prison wardens is limited to less than five minutes a day. This means that I am deprived of human contact for 23 hours and 55 minutes a day. And the court agreed with him. Now, the judge said even those who perpetrate acts of terror should have their rights protected. So she ruled in favour of the human rights case he brought against the Norwegian state. And as Breivik's lawyer is Oystein Storvik. The main thing was the treatment and the two heavy security measures. The courts say that you have to, to put a level on the security because if you are emphasizing security all the day and all night, then the pressure is too heavy on him. The BBC even found a victim of Bravik's shooting, a guy who was there, he saw his friends felled by Bravik's weapons, who said, the decision is just because, he reasoned, if we, Norway, are a civilized country, we have to extend every consideration of civilization even to the worst among us. Of this, I am of two minds. I think this might be along the lines of the Pope forgiving his would-be assassin, 
laudable for the Pope, but it needn't be the law of the land. Just as justice shouldn't spring from the most bloodthirsty, vengeful, unintellectual instincts, it needn't be dictated not just by the better angels of our nature, but by cherry-picking the angels of the most angelic among us. Reports indicate that Brevik did get exercise time for an hour or two a day. And if there was ever a rationale for limiting interactions, it's this homicidal Nazi who desperately tried to correspond with sympathizers and would-be acolytes. We in America are a long way from the ideals of justice of Norway, and we need to move. I just don't know that Norway's ideals really are ideal. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, has draped herself in fuchsia and insisted on being called her fuchsianess or fusation or the future of fuchsia. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has gone with puce. He is draped in puce and even has a character that he calls the puce moose. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, He's gone with a power color of white. Well, it's not really white. It's more of an eggshell. Actually, it's more of an Indian summer. You really have to look at it in the light. It's not even worth it. The gist, I'm going with this year's colors of the year. Rose quartz and serenity. Now, umpuru depuru dupuru, thanks for listening. So last night, after I finished writing my article for Slate, last night I go to a bar to meet friends to toast Prince. We get to the bar, and they're not playing any Prince music. So... I say to the bartender, hey, what gives? And of course, the bartender, I don't mean to sound condescending. I'm, you know, I'm a dude in my 40s. It's all 20-somethings. It's all millennials. And they're like, oh, man, you know, we wanted to play Prince. But like, I looked on Spotify. I looked on YouTube. I couldn't find anything. So I whipped out my phone and I said, here. Because of course, I had a playlist on my phone of like dozens of Prince songs. And we put it on shuffle. And they were listening to my iPhone for the next hour and a half while we drank and toasted Prince. So that's my story of last night.